This is James Renner, author of True Crime Addict, and you're listening to the Mike Sappho podcast. Is this my pal James Renner? <laughs> this is. What's going on, bud? I appreciate you calling in. Hey, uh, thanks for having me on the show. Um, we've been trying to get this together for a while, so I'm glad it finally worked out. Well, it's funny because I read your book, True Crime Addict, a few years ago, and it's on my bookshelf, and I'm a true crime fanatic, and uh, I've always wanted to have you on, and I you know, I forgot about it. You're doing your own thing, and then around <laughs> three or four weeks ago, a buddy of mine brought up the Maura Murray case, and I'm like, wow, you know what I haven't talked about or looked into or read in a while? James Renner. So I reached out to you, and uh, you were nice enough to come on, man, so I really appreciate that. Well, thank you very much. Sorry about that. I ha I'm in a, uh, a hotel room in uh, Hancock, Maryland um, tonight. So I just uh, I clicked off the AC so we don't have that rumbling in the background. But, that's, a big, uh, that's a big party town, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I'm at. I really don't know where I'm at. I just pulled off the highway and grabbed a hotel um, with some Wi-Fi so we could Skype. And I like I'm done driving for the day. So I'm just going to crash. But uh, I'm out this way because I'm heading to D.C. to cover the court case of uh, Maura Murray's boyfriend, Bill Rausch, who is scheduled to appear in D.C. Superior Court uh, tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. So you're not sick of talking about the disappearance of Maura Murray yet, are you? Well, yes. <laughs> yes, and, <laughs> yes and no. Every time I talk about it, it gets me in trouble. But um you know, so I, I'm I'm trying to do less and less of that, but uh, you know, there's this developing situation with um, Bill Roush, who was her boyfriend at the time of her disappearance. He's a uh, he's been a um, he stands accused of uh, attempted rape in uh, uh, re related to a an assault in 2011 that occurred in D.C. So I'm watching that with interest, and it's definitely enough to get me to. Um, you know, drive the six hours from from home to uh, to the Capitol. All right. I'm going to give a quick one minute brief description on the disappearance of her. Let me know if this is a decent summary and then we'll start. Sound good? If you can summarize this case in, in <laughs> under 60 seconds, I, my hat's off to you, man. But let, yeah, let's see you try. Just a summary. Mara Murray, 22 year old nursing student at UMass. She sends an email out to her professors saying there was a death in the family, which there wasn't, but she's going to miss some time at school. She uh, empties her bank account, and around 7.30 p.m. on February 9, 2004, 15 years ago, she drives into the mountains of New Hampshire, gets into a one-car accident. The police arrive seven to ten minutes later. She's never been seen from again. Does that give a quick synopsis of it? Yeah, man. Nice job. That's the, uh, you know, that's the iceberg that's floating above the ocean of, of mystery. And, uh, you know, as you know, with iceberg, you know, it's only the top 10% that you covered. It's it's all the like dirty underside that uh, that draws people to the case. And that's where you come in, because before we talk about your book and the mystery that surrounds this case, I got to preface this by saying you're not just some armchair detective who watched a few videos, you're a journalist with an investigatory background, correct? That's true. Yeah, I covered crime in Cleveland for uh, seven or eight years. I worked for, we had a couple of Village Voice type newspapers in Cleveland back in the day called Scene, which is still around, but there was also the Free Times, which was kind of the more, uh, it was the underdog. And uh and I bounced back and forth between those two, covering crime and unsolved mysteries in Cleveland. It was the best job I ever had. I had so much fun. And uh, and and after I left the paper, <laughs> after I was ceremoniously fired during a political <laughs> scandal, um, I uh, began writing books, and I've I've had some luck doing that. And uh, uh, you know, whatever whatever the reason, I'm always finding myself in the middle of some unsolved mystery. And so it goes with the Maura Murray case, uh, you know, which was the subject of, of that book that came out in 2016. How'd you become so engrossed in it? And how'd you even get involved in it from the beginning? Uh, funny story about that. So um, <laughs> let's go back a little bit. I, so <laughs> My my uh, it was my psychologist who suggested that I find another mystery to write about. And uh, this 
was because I had taken taken a um, personality profile test called the MMPI, which stands for the Minnesota Multifacet Personality Inventory. And it's a uh, 500 question test where you fill out those bubbles, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, all sorts of questions about, the, you know, the type of person. You know, do you enjoy a glass of wine with dinner or um, do you like reading uh, magazine articles about true crime? And the results came out and suggested that uh, that I'm a sociopath. That uh, <laughs> <laughs> it suggests, you know, my my psychologist. I remember sitting at, you know, going over the results, and she's like, you know, uh, you know, she was a forensic psychologist, so she she actually met a lot of um, bad people, and she's. <laughs> She said, you know, your results are very similar to Ted Bundy's. And, uh, that's one of those things that you just can't, you can't unhear, you know? <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I'm like, what am I supposed to do with that information? And she's like, well, you, you got to lean into it, you know, do what, do what you're best at. You know, your, your thing is, you know, you're obsessed with hunting bad guys instead of, you know, hunting good people. And, so go with that and uh, find something else to write about. So I took that advice and I wanted to find a big mystery. I've written about Ohio mysteries before, but I wanted something on a national level. And so I took my time like looking for the perfect case. And I remember being at home. I was watching my kid. He was like three at the time and uh, watching, you know, he was taking a nap. So I was watching 2020 and they were doing this um episode of that was a combined uh two-parter where two disappearances right uh Mm -hmm. one was brooke wilberger and the other was this girl named maura murray this young woman and uh right away brooke wilberger's case very tragic but very typical abduction maura murray's though the more i listened to it the more i realized that this is this case is weird um because it's actually not it's not just a single mystery. It's two mysteries wrapped around each other, uh, right? Because, you know, the first, you know, top of the list, right, is uh, what happened to Maura Murray. Mm-hmm. Also, there's this other mystery of what was she doing in the White Mountains to begin with? And I figure, like, just statistically, I figured my odds were better because there were two mysteries. And I, if I could just solve one of them, the answer to the other would present itself. So... That's how I ended up picking Maura Murray to to write about. And thankfully, with such an open and closed, easy cake, no worries, right? Nice and easy case to follow up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of those cases where you start, and these are the cases I love. You know, it's it's one of those cases where you peel back the layers, like an onion. And uh, you know, the the further you go, the more questions come up, and the weirder, the weirder it gets. And, uh, you know, in the 2020 special, they made more out to look like, you know, this this perfect young woman, uh, perfect to a fault, no faults at all. And I know that couldn't be true because, you know, we're all we're all flawed. You know, everybody has their demons. Everybody has their skeletons in the closet. And what was more? So the first thing I did was send out a whole bunch of public records requests for. You know, anywhere Maura had ever lived or worked um, to try to find out if she'd ever gotten in trouble. And sure enough, you know, that's when it really started getting interesting, because I found out that at the time of her disappearance, Maura was in trouble for credit card fraud and identity theft um, because she had been using a a stolen credit card. She was using numbers from a credit card's order. I mean, just just pizza, like $80 worth of pizza. But um, that kind of put a new light on on who she was. And that's not to say Maura was, you know, a bad person. I, I think she was just she was young. We all make we all make stupid. I made so many stupid mistakes when I was young. And um, but, you know, it gives a more it gives a, a fuller picture, I think, of who she was to when you understand the, the the mistakes that she was making at the time of her disappearance. And that mistake was made at the Naval Academy. That's where she made that credit card uh, grand larceny arrest, correct? Well, no, there's two things that, that, that happened. I, I mean, she there were a whole – her life was 
there's a lot of drama going on when she disappeared. So you had the credit card fraud, which happened at UMass. Okay. She was a student at the um, University of Massachusetts Amherst. But you're also thinking of um, before before she transferred to UMass into the nursing program, she actually attended West Point, which is a prestigious you know, military school, very hard to get into. Um, and she was about to be expelled from West Point. Be why? Because she stole from Fort Knox. <laughs> right? She stole from the most secure facility in the United States. And it's not like she stole gold bullion or anything. She stole like $10 worth of makeup from the commissary, which um, and she got caught. And they were going to expel her from West Point, but they allowed her to withdraw and transfer, which was really nice. She kept getting these second chances. And, you know, um, we laugh about this because, you know, and, and I think we laugh about it because it's it's like um, tragic comedy, you know, type of thing where you, you have to laugh at it. And we've all been in those places. But, um, you know, I just want people to, to understand that she was, um, you know, like all of us, she was a complicated person. Um, and whatever happened to her up in the White Mountains, you know, she did not deserve. So, um when I wrote the book, I was hopeful that she had basically walked away from her life and, and found happiness and started anew. But the more that time goes by, the more I become convinced that she she probably ran into foul play up in the White Mountains. Um, but I, I think if she did, we're looking at the wrong place and the wrong time. Now, let's – so we, we talked about her a little bit of a shady past. And even though stealing some makeup – and credit card for pizza, it does show a little flaw in the character. It's a difference of like running out on a bill. I kind of feel it's a little more calculated when you're using someone's credit card. So it shows she does have some, maybe some little issues. You agree with that? Of course, yeah. Now, you know, she's dealing with all this stuff. I know she had enough, she has a lot of drama, and I don't want to ruin everything because they should read your book because no matter how long this interview is, it doesn't scratch the surface of the, investi <laughs> you know, the investigation you do and the details you give in a book in the book, which is phenomenal. But I want to fast forward a little bit to that strange weekend. Yeah, she's, sure. if, if you can just give the background for me, saying it would be silly, but start from when she's on the phone and then a father comes down. Cause this weekend is just, you couldn't make this stuff up. Right. So first of all, she disappears on a Monday after uh, a Monday evening. Um, this is February, 2004. And to put a little context as to that time period, because some of your listeners uh, may have even been, you know, they, they don't remember that era. But that was the week, the exact week that Facebook launched. So I always look at Maura Murray. Oh, wow, wow. <laughs> isn't that weird? Yeah. I always look at Maura Murray as the first big mystery of the social media age. Um, so that's, that's the time frame we're dealing with. There was no Facebook. Um, she had a MySpace page. She was most, as far as social media goes, it was mostly, um, uh, you know, that like uh, AOL instant messenger stuff. So um, that's the time frame. So Monday she disappears, but everybody looks at like, well, what was happening in the days leading up there? And really the drama for Mora seems to start the Thursday before she disappears, where she's working at – she had a job on campus where she was uh, – uh, working for security at the dorms at a girl's dorm, and uh, I might I might have that wrong. She was working at a dorm, mm -hmm. and she was checking in um, people as they came through the doors. She checked their IDs and make sure that they actually belong there. Well, she was working Thursday night before her disappearance, and she had some sort of breakdown that night. So that's where everybody kind of goes to. And uh, when you talk about that breakdown on Thursday night. Night, a lot of people go to this call she had with her sister Kathleen, her older sister Kathleen, who uh, was having trouble with uh, substance abuse, and that was the you know and and issues with her boyfriend. However, she spoke to her sister Kathleen, I think around ten o'clock that night. After that, she spoke to her boyfriend Bill. This is the guy that's in trouble in D.C. Mm -hmm. You don't know the nature of that phone call. But it was after that call that she had this nervous breakdown and her supervisor shows up 
you know, uh, her supervisor, you know, checks in on each of the security people and she comes and finds Mora in essentially a catatonic state. And all that Mora will tell her supervisor or all she will say is my sister. What, what what does that mean? Nobody really knows to this day what that means or which sister. She has two sisters. She has a sister, Julie, and a sister, Kathleen. Um, so the supervisor helps her back to her dorm, you know, kind of signs her out. She's done. There's no way she's functioning enough to do her job. So she's sent back to her dorm. That's Thursday night. Friday morning, uh, classes are canceled. There's a snowstorm. So no, no classes on uh, Friday. Saturday, Mora's father, Fred, shows up on campus. Um, he has said repeatedly that the reason he was there that weekend was to buy, help Mora find and purchase a, uh, a car because her Saturn uh, apparently was, was running poorly. Although I will say in, <laughs> in college, I used to drive uh, this this ratty suburban with like plastic on the back windshield, like four hundred dollars, and the Saturn that Moore is driving around. Oh my God! I should I be so lucky to have a car like that in college? Uh, so who knows? Who knows? Uh, but that's Fred's story. Um, he goes. Uh, with Mora and her friend Kate, they hang out at a brew pub. And then Mora's like, hey, I want to go to this party on campus. And so Fred's like, okay, just take me back to the motel. You can borrow my car. So she takes her dad back to the motel, um, takes the car back to campus. And there's this party at her friend Sarah's uh, dorm dorm room. And uh, Kate's there, her, her best friend at, at, at college. And then about three o'clock in the morning, she tells the people at this party, hey, I, I got to talk to my dad. And they're like, dude, it's three o'clock in the morning. What do you talk? What do you need to talk to your dad for? <laughs> Nobody knows. So Maura drives her father's car towards the motel. She crashes into a guardrail on the way. The police are called. Um, they the policeman who responds allows her to. Um, hop in the cab. This is weird, the more I think about it, because the policeman allows the tow truck driver to take Mora to her father's motel, which isn't that far away. Um, and the car itself is, there's a lot of damage to it, and it's her father's car. So she's going to be cited for, at the very least, reckless op because of this. And she ends up back at her father's motel. And there's various stories about what happens next. Her father, on record, has said, um, you know, he kind of woke up and she was in the the in the room. So, um, but there's been a couple different versions of that. So it's hard to exactly nail down. Obviously, he wasn't too happy with her, right? Because she she wrecked his car. So he gets a rental the next day. Uh, now we're into Sunday, and uh, he drops her off at uh, her dorm. That's the last time he really sees her, and uh, you know he asks her to get copies of the accident report. Uh, now, James, I want to jump in because there's two parts to that that I made little notes of. One, he came down to buy her a car, and he did bring like was it four or five thousand dollars cash with him, correct? It was four thousand dollars in cash, and the the um, strange thing about that is he stopped at eight different ATMs to withdraw it instead of just writing a check, instead of going to his bank or or you know someplace to get the full amount. Um, so that's always been a big question to me, but I will say that uh, Fred has stuck to his story all these years that, you know, he was just in a, in a hurry to get the cash and he was staying at a hotel uh, for his job. So he was kind of away from home. Um, so he, he says he, there, there was nothing nefarious that he stopped at these different ATMs to collect the money to get her a new car. And then the other thing that you mentioned was the party. I forgot which interview I heard you on or something you somewhere I read it with you that Har and Kate were at this huge big bash, but yet no one's ever talked about this party. It's like this mystery party. Right. So 
first of all, it wasn't it wasn't that big because the party happened inside a in, inside a dorm room. So, but I I did hear that it was essentially standing room only. So we're talking about. I mean, that could still be like ten people. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't a huge party. However, um, we know it was at Sarah's dorm. Maura was there. Kate was there. That's all we really know. Um, when the police went to interview Kate after Maura disappeared, and and the police were like, "Hey, so who else was at that party?" Kate was uncooperative. Um, she said. When I talked to her years later, she said, oh, I I just couldn't remember. I can't remember who was there. But even back days, a week after Maura disappeared, uh, Kate was unhelpful. She she told the police back then that she couldn't recall. So I don't buy that. Um, We later come to find out that Maura hooked up with a guy at that party. so perhaps that's why they were so secretive about uh, about what happened that night. And in fact, one of the friends even told, I think it was um, Teen Magazine or something like that, that uh, uh, she didn't want to say more about the party because she didn't want to get more in trouble. And that could just be that, you know, she didn't want Moore's boyfriend to find out that she hooked up with a guy. But she's missing. Like, so I, I don't think anyone would care about her little infidelity. The, the girl's missing. I know. I know. But people, <laughs> people are weird, man. You know, it's uh, especially out in Massachusetts where it's, it's all <laughs> right. It's, it's all about pride and self-preservation and, and not, you know, not make not making people look bad. With this case, everyone has their own thing about like what the most mysterious thing is, what question they want answered. The next part I want to talk about, she emailed her professors about death in the family. I think that's like mind-blowing, like that lie she told. So she emails her professors that there was a death in the family when in fact no one passed away. So she needed some time off, right? Yeah, sure. That is strange. Uh, You know, I have a personal theory about this that I I don't think I've ever really talked about in an interview before, Uh, but other people have talked about online. Um, So – the lead detective in her disappearance, um, I spoke to with uh, years later, and this lead detective believes to this day that Mora, at the time of her disappearance, was pregnant. Okay. Um, there were searches done on her computer that they were able to find related to the effects of alcohol on uh, the fetus and, and things like that. This death in the family, what does that mean? What does that mean? And why does she have to get away? I wonder if if it's possible that she didn't realize she was pregnant, if she if there was some if there was a miscarriage or if if it's something related to that pregnancy in her mind that, uh, you know, there's these other theories that she might have gone off to get an abortion, which I don't buy because, you know, you can do that in Massachusetts. You don't need to go up to New Hampshire for that. Um but I wonder if, you know, if it has something to do with that, you know, that in her mind, the death in the family meant meant this uh, this 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 fetus. I don't know. Um, that's total uh, just uh, conjecture. But uh, there, you know, why did she say that? Why did she say there was a death in the family? Was it a simple lie or was she? Was it some sort of like half truth? I don't know. After that, she goes, empties out her bank account. You know, there was a little bit of money in there. And then your biggest mystery is why she left. She drives. Why would she drive through the mountains? And what exactly happened after that? Yes, Uh, that's key. I think one detail in here that's not talked about a lot that should be is that she had been calling rental places trying to find a place to stay up in the White Mountains. And she called a condo that had two bedrooms. Um, and I think that's key. Because if you're if you're just a young woman that's looking to get away, to clear your head, to get some space, you're not going to be calling condos that have multiple bedrooms. 
you know, she had stayed at this condo association before, so it was familiar with her. She would have known, you know, especially once she got on the phone, that, that these were multiple bedrooms. So the only thing that I can say I'm 100% sure about is that Maura was not traveling alone that night. She, I believe, this is my opinion based on years of research for what it's worth, um, I believe she was traveling in tandem with another driver. And I think it was probably a friend of hers who was in another vehicle ahead of her. And they were driving and, you know, so Maura eventually gets on into a single car accident on Route 112 at about 7.30 that night. And uh, I think it was that tandem driver who eventually realized she was no longer behind them and, and doubled back and, and picked her up. Now, James, is it a rumor or is it fact that uh, she was spotted either on video or by a cashier a few hours early with some friends buying some wine? I, I know I read that. I, I always get confused where I read stuff, if it's fact or not. It was on the Internet, so it's probably true. But, uh, <laughs> but, but was she spotted with other people like an hour or two before the crash? So I would put that in the rumor category, but but with a star that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as far as rumors go, in my mind, it's a very substantiated rumor. Um, and it was about 45 minutes before the crash where the sighting occurred. And Mora crashed her car in a little town called Haver, um, Haverhill, Haverhill, I think they pronounce it, New Hampshire. And right before you get to Haverhill, there's a, a town called uh, Woodsville. And in Woodsville, there was this uh, grocery store called Butson's. And uh, this cashier worked at Butson's the day of Moore's disappearance. And 45 minutes before the disappearance, the, the accident there, um, she recalls, and she's adamant, um, she reached out to me directly. And she, she didn't want to be, be named, but I was able to verify who she was and that she was working at Butson's. As a cashier, she says Maura came in with two other girls, other young women, and uh, they went to the register and bought some cigarettes and some more alcohol. And she remembers this because of, one, Maura's appearance, but also these young women were using out-of-state licenses to purchase the alcohol. And of course, we're talking about, you know, Maura and her friends, you know, coming from Massachusetts, coming from Connecticut, coming from elsewhere. They would have had an out-of-state license. That's why it's stuck in her head. And uh, there are people that say, you know, eventually you know, on the oxygen special, for instance, they kind of try to debunk this theory because um, the cameras inside the grocery store didn't pick Maura up coming coming in. And uh, what you don't understand without actually going there and speaking to the people that worked at the grocery store is the cameras weren't owned by the grocery store. They were owned by the branch bank that was inside the grocery store. And the, the cameras were only focused on that corner of the grocery store. They weren't even focused on the doors coming in and out. So they wouldn't have picked up Mora at the register and they wouldn't have picked up Mora coming in and out and she didn't go to the bank. So of course she's not going to be on those on that video. So allegedly she possibly bought some wine and some cigarettes and then she gets into this one car accident and walk me through this. The big burly bus driver Butch shows up like a minute later to offer assistance, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, so she where she crashed on Route 112, it's like an it's like a, and so it's 730 at night on uh, in February. So it's dark and it's this 90 degree turn at a weathered barn. And at that 90 degree turn, she loses control, crashes into a snowbank. Now, you think White Mountains, you think desolate, you think in the middle of nowhere. But actually where she crashed was essentially a little neighborhood. And there was a, um, an older couple that heard her crash and they called into 911. And then this, this bus driver shows up, Butch Atwood. And, uh, a lot of people picture a big school bus, but what he was driving was actually, um, it's a short bus. Uh, he was driving some kids up to uh, ski slope that night. So 
he pulls up and says, uh, Hey, you know, do you want, do you need any help? Do you want to come to my house and, and, uh, you know, call for, for assistance. And she, she waves him away and says, no, 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 I already called AAA. And he knows that's a lie because even to this day at the scene of the accident up in the white mountains, you can't get cell phone service. So he went back and told his, uh, his wife to, to call the police too. So now you have two people calling the police and, uh, from the time of the first phone call to 911 and the first responding officer, uh, we're talking about a window of three to seven minutes. And it's somewhere in that window that Mora disappears. Never and to be seen again. Originally, like most police officers would do, because when I read it, I'm like, okay, maybe a drunk driver. If you see, if a cop goes to a car accident, no one's there. Even if they see a small bottle of liquor, it's like, all right, this person was drunk. They ran away. They'll come get the car, the car in the morning. So they didn't treat it as a missing persons originally. Did that affect any part of the investigation? Oh, my God, it affected everything. Um, and you, you can't really even blame the police because, like you said, it looked like a um, you know, the, the, the responding officer, Cecil Smith, um, you know, he looked in the window and saw this open box of wine and wine spilled inside. He could smell alcohol. And Cecil Smith was a teetotaler. You know, he didn't drink, but he knew what alcohol smelled like. And, uh, you know, so by all appearances, what it appeared to be was a drunk driver who walked away from an accident before they could be charged with a DUI. So, yeah, they didn't treat it as a missing person until they were able to connect with the Murray family and find out that uh, that Mora was was gone. A lot of people instantly said, okay, she got into an accident, she might have been drunk, she runs into the woods. But that is completely, and I hate to use the word, but it's impossible that she went into the woods, right? Absolutely. Um, that's the first thing you think when you're just, when you've never been to the accident scene, when you're just sitting at home reading about this. There was this uh, famous um, writer, his name is John Ronson, and uh, he had essentially just tweeted out, you know, of course, she wandered into the woods and died. And I reached out to him and I said, John, uh, you know, if you if you go to the the scene of the accident, you will change your mind. And he called me on it. He's like, OK, he's like, uh, he's like, deal. And I, I'm like, what? He's like, meet me there. So <laughs> so it's the middle of winter and John Ronson drives in from New York City and I drive in from Ohio and we meet up in the White Mountains. We jump in his car. And uh, he's recording all this. Uh, and uh, his his um, producer, Lena Masitis, um, I think I'm getting the last name right, finally. Um, she drives us out and uh, we sit at the scene of the accident. And, you know, a minute later, Ronson's like, OK, I'm convinced you're right. She couldn't have walked into the woods and, and just died because, again, it's a neighborhood. If she had walked into the woods, those woods end a hundred yards, you know, uh, away from the away from the road, and then you come to like this development with lots of houses and trailers, and you know, she she would have had to have walked into somebody's yard, and and nobody nobody noticed her. There were no footprints. She didn't walk into the woods. And when were the dogs called in to track her scent? I believe I'm getting this right. I'm not 100% sure, but I believe they were brought in on Wednesday. She disappears at 7.30 at night on Monday, and the real search begins like Wednesday morning. So a lot of time has passed, but luckily it had snowed Monday morning, and it didn't snow again until after the search began. So, you know, the, the footprints would have been preserved uh, it was it was excellent search conditions. They had a helicopter out um, and they were not able to find any evidence that she walked away from the the accident and, and, and into the woods. And the dogs tracked the scent a few feet to the middle of the road. Right, 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 right. Yeah, the dogs, uh, which was your original question. Yeah, <laughs> these these dogs. Um, yeah, exactly right. They they. We're able to trace her scent based on like a glove from the trunk of her car. And uh, 
went into the center of the road and and that's where they lost the scent which suggests that she got into uh, a car you know and so everybody assumes well and i don't know why they assume this but they assume that you know some good samaritan came by and offered her a ride and she got in and that was the guy that killed her now there are several things wrong with that theory uh the first one being that Mora has already encountered a good Samaritan, Butch Atwood, and she's declined that offer. But um, let's assume that that's what happened. What's the, the what is the likelihood that a serial killer would happen upon that in that four minute window where she was vulnerable and, you know, somebody capable of getting her in the car and then murdering her. And then on top of all that, there are three houses that have a direct line of sight to the accident scene and nobody sees her get into a vehicle. So the other explanation, which I think is the truth, is that she was traveling with a friend in another car and that's the person that came back and picked her up. Now that interaction I mean, it could have been 10 seconds. You know, she sees her friend pull up. She jumps into the car. Go, go, go. They're gone. That's why the neighbors didn't see anything, because she knew the driver. I'm a big statistics guy, big sports guy, and I'm very anti-conspiracy theories just because I'm all, just because of the common sense that perfect things have to happen. You, The butterfly effect. If one thing happens, the whole plan's thrown off. And I'm always like, what are the odds, James, just like you said, that a guy with ill intentions – is driving down the same road, stops and sees this girl. She gets in the car. It just doesn't seem possible because then everything would have to align perfectly that a killer gets her in the car. It just doesn't seem normal, right? Exactly right. Exactly right. It, it's statistically nearly impossible. Um, but the only reason I think people gravitate towards that is because it would make an excellent episode of of CSI or, or an excellent movie. It's what we see on TV, these impossible odds, but that stuff, stuff doesn't happen in real life. You start writing this book and I, I figured the family would be ecstatic that a known writer like you, a known investigator taking his time, money and going full boat. Where is Maura Murray? But yet they, they were kind of uh, they were assholes to you right from the beginning. They and you didn't try to s- slander their name. You didn't try to make this gossip page six book. You were truly to find out what was going on with their daughter, and they kind of stonewalled you from day one. Yeah, you know, my 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 only objective going into this was here's a puzzle. Let me see if I can figure out the solution. Um, and uh, you know, you <laughs> you. you you, you call them assholes, but they, they're really, I mean, they're, they're people just like us. They're, they're flawed. They, they have their own personalities and I don't begrudge them. I really don't, uh, with, with how they acted. Um, I think, uh, we're dealing with a family with, with a lot of issues. Um, and yeah, yes. Uh, when I, first started this book, the first thing I did was uh, try to contact Fred Murray, Moore's father, and I did so through the family spokesperson at the time, which was this woman named Helena, Helena Murray, who was related through marriage. And she got back to me right, up, right away and said, you know, Fred doesn't want a, a book written about this. And um, and that's, that's a red flag for me as a journalist, but also as the father of um, of a girl, you know, I, I, I have a daughter and, and just as a father of kids. And if somebody if, if one of my kids, God, you know, forbid, goes missing and a journalist comes to me, you know, look, my door's open, you know, go through everything. You know, we've all got secrets. Um, just just help me find her. And that's not the response that I got. Um, and you know, you know who knows who knows why, um, but you know that's honestly one of the reasons I I dug in and I'm like I know there's something bigger here, and uh, and I was right and it might all boil down to the fact that we're dealing with a very insular, very prideful, very uh, private 
Massachusetts family. And they didn't want people to know that when she disappeared, Mora had all these problems and all this trouble because maybe they would, they think we wouldn't look for her, but of course we would. Of course we would. You're being stonewalled by the father, which is shocking. When did you finally get the ball rolling? Like when did uh, you start getting more information and start to, I don't want to say discover because you weren't trying to make an expose, but when did the ball get rolling with getting more uh, facts out there and seeing exactly what happened to Mora? Yeah, so I I would say after I knew that an interview with her family was not going to happen, I began a blog. Um, I put together this blog on the case, and I announced that I was looking into the case. And every time I found something new, or I did a new interview, or I found some new documents, I would post it on the blog. Now, and the reason I, I did that was to be completely open. Here's what I'm doing, step by step. Um, if you have any thoughts or any new avenues of investigation, let me know. And that's starting that blog in 2011 is really what made everything happen, made the book happen. It, it made more into eventually um, an international news story. And uh, I didn't set out to make that happen. What I hoped would happen was that starting the blog would would um, generate new tips and information. And that certainly happened. But I did not expect it to become as big as it as it did. Um, you know, I checked the stats on the blog and, you know, we're, we're seven million people have have checked into that blog. You were one of the first true crime blogs that I knew of, not on Reddit, not on a random message board that was focused on one case. You were interactive with everybody, and you were taking people's, I guess, advice and their theories, and you were running with everything. Yeah, <laughs> and I would not recommend that. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it was the first. It was the first of its kind, uh, and and that's not. I'm not trying to be egotistical or anything, but nobody had really done that before. So we didn't know what would happen. And I had this generous <laughs> view of humanity, and I thought that everybody could be respectful. I thought this blog could serve as like a, the way a writer's room works in a newsroom, where people could come in and share ideas, but... And, and even toss out names of potential suspects, but with the understanding that we don't know for sure that this person really did it, but we're just furthering the conversation and, and coming up with new ideas and, and new new avenues of investigation. So that all that's good, but you know when you when you add the anonymity of the internet on top of all of that, you get what you get is is these trolls, you know, these people that just want to stir the shit and, and, and make people's lives miserable. And I did not anticipate that. And what it, the best analogy I can come up with is there were a lot of times where I felt like Mickey Mouse and Fantasia, you know, that, that sequence where, He's the sorcerer's apprentice, and this and the sorcerer goes away, and he, and he decides to, you know, test the magic on his own, and it gets away from him, and suddenly the whole sorcerer's castle is being flooded, and and he has to summon these these brooms uh, and with 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 buckets to get the water away, and it just got it just got away from me. And your, weren't you threatened and someone put up pictures of your kids? Like you dealt with a lot of stuff. You were being harassed from all these weird people. Didn't someone put a picture of your son up on uh, on YouTube or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it was like the uh, um, eighth anniversary of her abduction or something like that. Uh, this, this guy, um, he put a, he posted a video. And it was of himself in a basement, and he was laughing at the camera. You know, ah ha 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 ha. And then he'd stop, and then it said "Happy Anniversary." So we all, of course, thought, "Oh, this is the person that abducted Mora. He, he's taunting mm -hmm. 
release on the anniversary. Uh, so I put his picture up and, and the video on my blog, and I said, okay, guys, let's find this son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my uh, readers, they found him within like 24 hours. And we identified this, this guy, his first name's Alden, and he, and he worked as a greeter at the Walmart in Hadley, which is right next to the University of Massachusetts. So I posted his, I, you know, I posted his name and his picture and, and everything on the blog. He did not like that. Um, and the next video he posted was, uh, you know, I pulled it up and it was pictures of my son, who oh. was, uh, I think, four years old, four or five at the time. And uh, he had taken these pictures from my uh, private Facebook profile. And, uh, you know, so that was a wake up call. It's like, well, you know, this. This job has become, you know, bigger than than I expected it, and it's impacting my life and my family. Uh, so yeah, that was that was very very troubling, very scary. Was he ever investigated? Not just for your case, for anything? Or he was just like a creep? Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, he was he was investigated. He he had some issues, um, and I will say this. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what it says about me. I don't know that it's necessarily a good thing, but I have a tendency to, you know, when people do these crazy things, I want to understand them. I want to connect with them in some way. But Alden and I have uh, have, you know, come to understand each other a little bit. And, and uh, you know, I've I've reached out to him. I've taken the things down on my blog that identify him. um specifically and uh you know we've we've um i guess come to some sort of truce or understanding at the very least and you know i think he he's a guy that was in a in a rough place that did something impulsive and uh and he and he feels bad about it now and um you know so we've we've come we've (laughs) we've we've come together after after all that we can go down the rabbit hole for hours with things in the tailpipes and this and that. And you got to read the book to find out the spectrum of stuff that you uncovered is fascinating. Two things I want to touch on because you you surprised me early on when you said you, you think she might have been uh, met up with foul play. But I'd always thought your um, theory after the investigation was that there was a tandem driver and she went somewhere. What makes you think she was uh, put up with foul play? Because I read somewhere, obviously on your blog, that didn't wasn't there like very good sightings of her in Canada? Yeah, there were a number of sightings in Canada. And then those sightings seemed to move from Canada to Florida, to the area of Sarasota, Florida. And there were, you know, and the sightings began with um, somebody who called me because they were convinced that they saw Mora at a gas station in Sarasota in a vehicle that had uh, a Canadian plates. And so after that, all the sightings come from Florida. So I'd like to believe it's Mora, but it could just be a, a, you know, a lookalike, a doppelganger. You know, we all have one of those or two of those. Uh, But just, it's just, just for me, the more time goes by, the less likely it is that she's been able to fly under the radar and to stay hidden. Um, and the more likely it is that she's dead. Uh, but I still believe in the tandem driver. So let's follow that a little. If there was a tandem driver who was traveling with a friend, they could have continued on to a condo or a cabin or a hotel. And, uh, Let's say the friend has to get back for classes and more is going to speak. So they drop her off. And in their minds, you know, it's not a big mystery at this point. They just left their car behind. They know it's going to be impounded. They'll deal with that at the end of the week. Mora is sitting in a cabin somewhere, perhaps. Doesn't have cell phone service. Doesn't have the Internet. Has no idea she's becoming missing persons. So let's say... Yeah, somebody closer, and and there are a handful of people that I think are are you know 
could be possibly the person we're talking about, you know, four or five people. Somebody comes in to join the search for Mora. They come in, she disappears on Monday, they come in on Wednesday. Mora's just relaxing in a cabin thinking everything's essentially hunky-dory. What if this person that joined the search finds her before the police do? And they fly into a rage. You know, you wouldn't believe the, the trouble you've caused us. You have no idea what's going on. How could you do this to everybody? Perhaps the rage monster comes out and they're, they're unable to help themselves and they, they kill her. So maybe we're looking at the wrong date and the wrong area for what happened to Maura Murray. But maybe she, she was still murdered later on in the week at a different location. Did you ever make nice with the family? Is it because you're still active? You're still your blog's still going. You're still posting. You're still talking about her boyfriend and everything. Her well, her ex-boyfriend. You and the family ever make nice? Um, I think we're close. Uh, you know, I, I'd certainly like to get there. I, I I will never have any sort of working relationship with Fred. I know mm-hmm. so much about him. Um, and and frankly, he probably knows too much about me. <laughs> what uh, I know, uh, Bill, but, but Bill, um, I'd like to have a better relationship with more siblings, and uh, as we go forward, uh, just you know, because I still get tips. You know, to this day, every week, people send me tips about this case. I just like to be able to say. Okay, I have this direct line to the family. You know, here's here's the tips that are coming in. Here's what I'm getting, just so you know. The boyfriend has an alibi. He's ruled out as a suspect initially because he wasn't there for the crash. He had an alibi. Why are you still following up so much, like, with him going to court, with him getting arrested, just because he's involved with the case as the ex-boyfriend, or do you think something else sinister? Well, any missing – any when a woman disappears um, – you know, the top suspects are always the people that know her. You start from there. And uh, what we have here, if we look at it without looking at any of the details, uh, the specific details, we have a, a woman who's gone missing. And her boyfriend at the time is now indicted on a felony sex abuse charge in D.C. And not only that, but this is one charge. This woman came to me to tell her story. You can you can hear it in her own words on YouTube if you go to my blog. Um, after she shared her story, four other women came forward with similar stories. And even coworkers of his are still coming out and contacting me and saying, he didn't assault me, but... I am convinced this this man has different personalities. There's one personality he has when there's a man in the room, but as soon as he's alone with women, there's some other personality that comes out. So Bill is a he scares people. He scares women. Um, and there's this ongoing case in D.C. on a felony rape charge. I mean, he's facing years in prison. So there's a lot of smoke. Um, you know, is there a scenario here in which he did harm to Mora is, is the question on my mind. Have you ever talked to him or anything? Has he ever reached out to you? I talked to him a number of times. Yeah. When I was writing my book, uh, he spoke to me a number of times and we had to keep a lot of that on background or, or off record. And, um, he's charming. He charmed me. <laughs> he did, you know, he, you know, he has a way with people. And in just like, you know, Ted Bundy was very charming, too. And, uh, you know, so we, we would talk on the phone and uh, it would end with me saying, yeah, I'd be concerned for him. I'd say, do you have somebody to talk to? I know you, you know, you're a veteran. You, you know, you went through this thing with Mora. I'm concerned about your well-being. And he, he, and he would say, yeah, thanks for the concern. Yeah, I've got somebody to talk to. But our relationship was great. Up until uh, the fall of 2015, as I was finishing up my book, when a number of his former co-workers came up to me and, and, and said uh, or contacted me through email. And, and they're like, 
do you know that he lost his job at Regroup International because he tried to rape a woman in, in the office? And uh, so then once that door was open, all this other stuff came out. And it's, you know, this guy is uh, he's a perpetual liar at the very least and maybe a dangerous man. One last question about Mara Murray. Did her sister tell you that she was going to tell you the truth and backed out of it? Yeah, that did happen. Um, and uh, hopefully, you know, I can repair that relationship well enough to get the full story from her eventually. But yeah, so her, her sister, Julie, I um, I went to her apartment in uh, outside of D.C. and this was before the book was published to, to get an interview with her. And, and she came back home and, and I was in the lobby and, um, and I spoke to her and she was with her either husband or, or boyfriend at the time. And he was also a lawyer. And, uh, you know, so he kept trying to interject and keep her from talking. But I asked her, I said, just tell me what happened the weekend before Maura went missing. What was Fred doing at UMass that weekend? Because I don't think it was for a car. And she said, I know exactly why my dad was there. And I'll, you know, I, I know exactly what happened that weekend. And I said, you know, she said, but I, I, I forget how it went, but you know, essentially she wouldn't tell me. And her boyfriend interjected and said, don't say another word. Don't say anything. to him." So the interview was cut off. So, I've always wondered, you know, what was it that she had to say? A few quick questions, ready to roll? Not about Maura Murray. Okay, great. Philosophy of Crime, your podcast. You still doing it or no? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Um, the second season just came out, uh, I think, in April of this year. And I, I have the the topics for the next season already. So I'm hoping to get to them sometime in the fall. But uh I wanted to do a crime podcast, but not like you know any of the other crime podcasts that are out there that just go over the same cases over and over. So what the philosophy of crime does is it looks at the big questions behind our obsessions with true crime, like why is true crime so popular, uh, and even like how do light how, how do lie detectors work? Do they really work? Um, what's up with criminal profiling? Um, and then it looks to classical philosophy for answers. So, you know, what would the great philosophers say about these things? Uh, um, what would they say about our obsession with crime? What would Socrates say? What would Plato say? Uh, so it's a little different. It's the intersection of philosophy and crime. Well, I'm looking right now, April 25th. Why is true crime so popular? And that was my next thing I was going to hit up with you. I have Harold Schechter on all the time, Eric Larson. Um, the captain from True Crime Garage. What sure. is it about? What is it about the genre? Now, it's my profession, so I see it every day. But what is it about the genre that people just become so obsessed with? No matter what, you can put on. My mom has solved every case ever on uh, True TV. What <laughs> What is it about these cases that people just become obsessed with? I think people need answers. They and and I, I think we want to see the world in black and white. And I think our obsession with true crime has to do with the fact that our society as a whole is going through some kind of existential crisis. And we're realizing we don't live in a world with tidy answers. We don't live in a black and white world. We live in a very, very gray world. So these unsolved crimes are, you know, this... Uh, we're realizing we live in a world without answers. And I think we're kind of digesting that and understanding that. And I, I hope at the end of the day, we'll, we'll come out, you know, better in the long run. But I think that's what is, is fascinating people is that we're trying to make sense of the world we live in and these unsolved mysteries more than anything else show us that, uh, that we live in a, in a world without answers. What book is James Renner reading right now? Uh, I'm reading two books. I'm reading uh, <laughs> I'm reading uh, A Confederacy of Dunces um, by the late, great John Kennedy Toole. 
Uh, and I'm also, because I love New Orleans, and it's the quintessential New Orleans novel, um, and I am also reading Spalding Gray's Sex and Death to the Age 14, uh, because I'm fascinated by Spalding Gray, who a lot of people don't remember anymore, but he was, um, um, he was a podcaster before there were podcasts. Uh, he would sit on stage and tell stories about his life and uh, became very famous for a time because of it. Uh, great storyteller, died uh, tragically um, by stepping off into uh, the ocean on his way to Staten Island one night. So um, those are the books I'm reading right now. Have you ever started a book or an article and for like one reason or another you stopped writing? Stopped reading? Stopped writing, like you start an article or a book, and you're like, ah, there's not enough information, or I'm going to call it quits, and didn't finish it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, I think that is, you know, I guess what, as a younger man, I would, I would find myself in a book that I wasn't enjoying, and I'd force myself to read towards the end, and now... Like life is too short. If I'm if I'm 20 pages in and it's not working for me, I drop it. So I I, I can't even name the number of books that I've that I've dropped. Um, you know, uh, I I think the first book I ever did that with was a Dean Koontz novel called Shattered, and uh, there were these characters that were driving through Ohio, very near where I grew up out in the country, and they described it as just a flat wasteland and and I knew just reading that that Dean Koontz had never been in Ohio because um you know it's especially around the Cuyahoga River I mean we you know it's it's crazy hilly and and beautiful and and grand and you know he just didn't get Ohio and I just I'm like well I can't trust this guy and I tossed him across the room Wikipedia never tells a lie so on their site, it says that Johnny Depp's involved in producing True Crime Attic. Can you confirm or deny that? I can uh, – yeah, I can confirm. Uh, he – Johnny Depp's company, Infinitum Nihil, um, purchased the option to True Crime Addict a couple years ago. And more than that, uh, they hired Richard Price to write the pilot and – for those that don't know Richard Price, he was a writer on The, the Wire. He's a novelist. He wrote a, some beautiful novels. Um, and uh, he recently wrote um, the HBO series The Night Of, which is one of my favorite series of all time. So he came out and uh, hung out with me and my family for a couple days, uh, I think back in like 2017 maybe. And uh, it just – such a crazy surreal experience to have Richard Price, um, you know, just hanging out with your kid. And, uh, you know, even to this day, every once in a while, we get a box of books in the mail from, from Richard Price to, to my son, you know, like Huck Finn and, you know, all these books that he should be reading. Um, so it's, yeah, yeah, it's true. It's, it's weird, weird life. He wrote The Lush Life. That's one of my favorite books. Yeah, there you go. Very good. Yeah. What's next for James Renner? Uh, I'm shopping around a new novel. It's called Violet Eyes. Uh, it's a um, contemporary gothic horror novel, haunted house story. So we'll see what happens with that. I'm, I'm also currently under contract uh, writing a television pilot um, that is an original idea based on an article that I wrote a little while ago. That it will be, um, if all goes well, knock on wood, uh, it would be a new crime procedural uh, that would uh, appear on TV uh, sometime in 2020. You and I are out at a bar. You want to impress everyone in the bar. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? <laughs> uh, pro honestly, probably Richard Price. That's a good answer. Though. I'll give you that answer. Okay, thank you. And my last question, uh, just from dealing with a lot of people who are on my show, who a lot of authors, a lot of just fascinating people, you're involved in the true crime world now. Did anyone ever send you any like murderabilia or anything kind of weird in the mail? Uh, 
the weirdest thing I've ever gotten in the mail was when I was still a reporter at the Free Times. And a woman who was angry at the way I wrote an article sent me a Burdizo in the mail. Do you know what a Burdizo is? I do not. A Burdizo is the tool that farmers use to castrate sheep. <laughs> <laughs> James Renner, this was a blast. Do me a favor, though, before we go, just plug your social media stuff. Plug True Crime Addict because we talked about Maura Murray, and it did nothing unless you read the book. So plug the book, all your social media, and everything you do. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It, no, uh, everything you want to know but we're too afraid to ask, uh, you should go to jamesrenner.com, and you'll find links to all my books and all my works, and um, that's the place to start for sure. I've got a podcast, The Philosophy of Crime. I've written seven books, uh, the most popular of which is True Crime Addict, which is about the Maura Murray case. James Renner, enjoy the party life in Maine. Don't get too drunk. you got to drive to D.C. <laughs> my yes. friend, this was an absolute blast. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.